We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. This morning, we are beginning a new series on the Psalms for the next couple of months. The Psalms are 150 songs that have been preserved for the people of God from long ago, compiled by many different authors, most notably by King David. The Psalms, perhaps more than any other biblical text, have a way of forming us as the people of God. They have a way of getting inside the mind and inside the heart and inside what we feel in our emotions and all of our experiences that we encounter and giving us language for what we go through in life. They are formative poems that deeply shape the hearts of God's people to be taken up regularly and routinely. I don't know, I didn't have one of these, but our kids did, but many of you I'm sure did, like a baby blanket that you kind of kept into adolescence something that was a source of comfort and encouragement to you that you would return back to and uh, just snuggle up with, I'd like that to be the Psalms in all of our lives, in a way. These, These poems are so rich, and they are appropriate for all range, the whole range of experience in our lives. Jesus actually demonstrates the centrality of the Psalms in that he quotes from the Psalms more than any other book in Scripture. And it's very obvious that he had many of these psalms memorized. Perhaps he had the whole Psalter memorized. We're not sure, but uh, he was very acquainted with the psalms, and they equipped him and enabled him to live through the mission that God, his Father, had given to him. While all the psalms are of Jesus, uh, the title of this series is Psalms of Jesus, so they're all of Jesus, we're going to select a handful of psalms over the next couple of months that will actually that were, were psalms that Jesus either, either took on his mouth, on his lips, and quoted, or that were formative for, um, or fulfilled through Jesus, which, all, of course, all of the psalms point that direction, or that the New Testament uses to reflect on the ministry and accomplishments of Jesus as well. So that's the, a little bit of the criteria for the psalms that we're looking at over the course of the summer. And we'll begin today with Psalm 1, one of these psalms that Jesus fulfills or embodies, as you'll, I hope I'll, I'll come to show at least by the end. Psalm 1 is a terrific psalm, and the introductory psalm, you want to start well when you're writing this kind of, or putting this whole corpus of songs together, and this psalm sets the tone and invites us into something deep. I want to start with a question, or a couple of questions. What do you love? On what are your affections set? In what do you delight? Because this psalm actually opens those questions up for us. We'll look at this in three parts. First, just uh, contrasting ways contrasting results, and contrasting ends. So, contrasting ways. The psalm categorizes all of life in two ways to live. So the psalm kind of presents a decision point, a fork in the road. Are you going to go this way or that way? And it's significant that here at the beginning of the Psalter, this is put before us as if to say, that the rest of these songs in this corpus of 150 songs are going to urge you and encourage you and um, compel you to walk in this other way, this one way of life. So psalm sets up the, the psalm sets up this contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. 
or the way of blessing and the way of perishing. So I hope you have Psalm 1 open in your Bible. Blessed is the man. We start in this way. Happy is the man. This is the same word. As this Hebrew word gets translated into Greek in the Septuagint, it's the same word that's used for the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. So blessed or happy, this is where life really comes together for a person in this place. Blessed is the man. And then the psalmist begins with three negatives. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Wicked, sinners, and scoffers. The wicked are, it's a general word for a way of life that is against the way that God has prescribed. Sinner, that word actually has a more technical meaning of of missing the mark. It's like an archer shooting an arrow, and sin is seen as missing the target. And it describes those who are living life not in the way that the Creator has intended and designed for us to live, but we've missed the target. We've missed the mark. We're living in a way that's not in alignment with our Creator. And then scoffer or mocker, it could be translated, gets closer to the heart of this text, this psalm. This implies one who does not listen to instruction. Something is plugged in his ears so that he cannot hear the advice and counsel of someone else. Someone who thinks that they can do life on their own terms, live life as they want to live it. G.K. Chesterton tells the story in the second chapter of his book, Orthodoxy, of walking around London with a publisher, and the publisher brought up another person, that the, a common person they both knew, and he said, well, he's going to be just fine because he believes in himself. And Chesterton, right after the publisher said that, said that there was one of the London buses was going by, and it had on its, uh, like, an advertisement on the side of it for the insane asylum uh, in Greater London. And I don't know why that would be on a bus uh, in London. <laughs> but he took advantage of that odd circumstance to say, to his friend, the publisher, you know, I think that man and anyone else who believes in themselves is going to end up in the insane asylum. And the publisher was a bit shocked and said, I don't know what you mean. Who else are you going to believe in if you don't believe in yourself? And Chesterton said to him, that's why I'm writing the book that I'm writing, which was the book Orthodoxy, which I'm sure many of you have read, in which he was wanting to explain that this God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ is a God worthy of our trust and belief and the right place to put that trust and belief and not in ourselves. These three, the wicked and the sinner and the the scoffer, are united in closing their ears to the way of God, their covenant king. Closing their hearts, closing their ears. They don't love what the blessed man loves. Verse 2, but his delight, this one who is blessed, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you want to be happy, if you want to have the blessed life, and I guarantee you that the Creator God wants you to be blessed deeply. This psalm gives us the key. It is to ask that question of what do you love? What do you delight in? What are your affections set upon? We delight in a lot of things. We can delight in New England, especially in our sports teams, despite the fact that the Bruins and Celtics didn't end up as we had hoped. We buy the gear, we follow the talk, we spend the money to get to the game. It's a way of delighting in something. People can delight in all kinds of things. We delight in money and keeping track of it and watching it, and we tend to ebb and flow in our hearts with how our assets go up and down. Uh, 
I know all of you grandparents out there, we all know you delight in your grandkids. We get to the blessing of seeing that. I had a few experiences in the last few months where a new grandparent has showed me a picture of their grandson or granddaughter, beautiful, and just that pride of delighting in a, in a grandchild. Maybe for those of you who are younger here, and those of you maybe who, who aren't younger but have been married for a long time, go back to when you were, but we can delight in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Remember when you fell in love with your spouse and how you couldn't stop thinking about him or her and wanting to talk on the phone or write letters as we used to do before the internet existed and so on and so forth. You delight in these things. It's kind of an obsession, a wonder, a sense of curiosity about something. I kind of can't get enough of this attitude. There's a poet, Ross Gay, contemporary poet, who wrote a book in 2019 called The Book of Delights, and it's 102 short chapters of things that he has found delight in, as he took an experiment in taking delight and reflecting on it. From pecans, to the reckless use of air quotes, to bird feeding, to riding by hand, and many other things. He was interviewed on a podcast, This American Life, that I'm sure many of you have listened to over the years, that first aired in 2020, it aired again recently, called The Show of Delights. And in that interview with the person from This American Life doing that episode, there was just this offhanded exchange where he said this to her, quote, we just had a bunch of people over here the other night, and one of the couples had this little kid, and so he starts yelling, rainbow, rainbow, and what did we do? We were all in here talking and being adults, and boom, we ran outside and started looking at the rainbow. Thank you, thank you. It's like, come gasp with me, come gasp with me. Incredible, he said. Delight is this intense interest. It's a sense of gasping. The happy man, the blessed man, is gasping at, delighting in, curious over the law of the Lord. Now, most of us don't think about law as something we get that excited or delight in. We think of it as a boring list of things and we bless you lawyers for caring about it more than most of us do. But law here doesn't just mean commandments. It's the word here is Torah, which means not only the list of commandments, but it means the narrative context within which those commandments actually cohere and make sense and understanding. It includes the sense of God creating the world and of his rescue of his people out of slavery in Egypt, of his miraculous provision for them as they wander through the wilderness with manna from above and water from the rock, God's deep delight in his people and all of those things that go into making the people of God who they were. When it says to delight in the law of the Lord, it means to delight in the whole of the instruction of God, which includes the story of his care and love for us as well. And it says that this man or woman who is blessed is the one who is deeply obsessed with, meditating over, delighting in these instructions, this story, reading it again and again, like a little child who says, read it again, Dad, read it again, for the 20th or 30th or 50th time. I delight in this. I want to hear the words of my covenant king. Not just for an hour, hour and a half on a Sunday morning, or just for 10 minutes, first thing in the day. But what does this text say? And on his instruction or law, what does it say? He meditates day and night. That's another way for saying all the time. Day and night. 
in the good times and in the hard times. Our circumstances can change in the blink of an eye. We all know that. They can often go from wonderful and great to hard and seemingly impossible in just a moment. But the disposition of the blessed man, as reflected in Psalm 1, is constant in setting itself upon delighting in the instruction of God, meditating on this instruction, mulling it over, murmuring over it. You think of a, an image of like the, chow, the cow chewing the cud to squeeze out the nutrients of this word, whether, whatever the time may be, day and night. Peggy Covell was bereaved when she was 18 years old in December of 1943. She had just found out that her beloved parents had been murdered by the Japanese army in the Philippines. They had been missionary teachers in Japan, and that's where Peggy had grown up until 1939 when the war broke out and her parents took refuge in the Philippines and sent their children back to the U.S. where she had been uh, planning to go to college. And she was devastated, as one might expect. The Japanese army had found a radio in the possession of her parents and basically just went through a, a phony trial and executed them as spies. And in her bereavement, she pondered what she should do in responding to this tragedy in her life. And she thought about the words of Jesus, and she thought about her parents and the way that they lived out the words of Jesus in their passion to serve the Japanese people. And so despite having deep anguish and pain about the loss of her parents and significant anger and bitterness, she fought through those things and decided to go and start serving Japanese prisoners in the United States on the border of Colorado and Utah near her hometown. And she would come to their camp and bring blankets, snacks, care for their wounds. And she was fluent in Japanese, so she was a great blessing to many of the prisoners of war at that camp. This was responding. This was meditating on. This was mulling over the word of God day and night, choosing this response. There was nothing particularly spectacular about her labor, but it was a reflection of one who chooses this path of blessedness, even in a time of real dark and night. We have this contrast. The wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer united in their pursuit of life on their own terms and ignorant of and closed off to the way of God over and against this man in this psalm who is happy and blessed, in tune with the ways of God's instruction. There is a deep difference in their loves. The one loves themselves and their own opinion and their own ideas or perhaps their culture's ideas for how to be blessed. The other loves and delights in the instruction of his covenant king and creator. And this leads then to contrasting results. There's a difference. This man is like a tree, verse 3, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. This is written in an arid climate that's lacking in water, and you get this picture of a tree that is planted in this one place for it to be healthy, to weather the storms, to weather the heat. Many of you who have driven across country, you know that you can spot the sight of a river or a piece of water when you're out in the plains because there is greenery and trees around it. This is the picture we get here of a tree 
that has roots that go down deep under the ground and are being nourished by the stream of water. Jesus said to the woman at the well that he was living water. In Isaiah 51, God speaks and says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Psalm 36 mentions that with you is a fountain of life. That is to say that the scriptures portray God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a source of life, a deep well of life in terms oftentimes of rivers and water. And we see that depicted here in Psalm 1. This tree has deep roots such that it can now sustain itself within any storm that may arise. In all that he does, at the end of verse 3, he prospers. This isn't the prosperity gospel. We as followers of Jesus are not somehow insulated from the, the pain and the heartache and the brokenness of this world, which all of us know, and some of you feel very, very deeply this morning. Rather, it is to say that in any and every circumstance, if your tree, if you are rooted deeply in the life-giving reality of God and his word, that there will be an ability to prosper in and through whatever circumstance God leads you into. Think about what it was for his son. It was the cross. You'll have resources to handle what God brings your way, and this prospering in the midst of these circumstances is the direct result in this psalm of planting of a deep planting by the stream of water, of an ear that is in tune with the voice of our Father. And notice about the fruit that's promised here that yields its fruit in its season. We actually don't get to, to, to determine the seasons, do we? The promise here is that the fruit will be yielded in its season. We can't make it summer, and for some of you right now, it feels very much like winter. But the life of rootedness in the instruction of God will bear fruit, this psalm promises, in season. Peggy Covell didn't know how that was going to turn out for her unsung and small and unnoticed acts of kindness in, the, in obedience to a king who commanded us to love our enemies. There was a man in Japan, Captain Mitsuo Fushida, who was the commander and architect of the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7, 1941, and rose in the ranks in the military, and then the war came to an end, and of course he was feeling ashamed and troubled. He was troubled at how his life had been spared countless times throughout the war. He was troubled at the dishonor to his nation, and he found himself seeking to, to, to defend the Japanese harsh treatment of their prisoners of war which had come out in the post-war trials, some of which were held in Tokyo, and at which he was called to bear witness. Because he th so he wanted to go out and show that other nations had treated their prisoners similarly, particularly the United States. And so he, he was interviewing Japanese soldiers of war who had been held by other nations and in the U.S., and he interviewed, to his great surprise, his former flight engineer, Kazuo Kanagasaki, whom he thought had died in the Battle of Midway in 1942, June of 1942. And Kazuo had told him that no, instead he had been taken captive by the United States and he was sent back to the U.S. and he was held at a camp on the border of Utah and Colorado. And he began to tell his former pilot about this woman named Peggy who had been so kind to him and the other prisoners at the camp, a real balm in the midst of great difficulty. Even though he told his, his pilot, 
Kushida, even though her parents, who were missionaries in Japan, had been killed by the Japanese army. And Fushida didn't actually have that much of an impact on Kazuo. He just sort of reported it as a matter of fact in this conversation. But Fushida, it, it lodged deeply. And he couldn't grasp, and he really struggled with how someone could actually love and be kind to their enemies. Because within his culture, an honor and shame culture, there was a duty to avenge the loss of one's family. It was required that you seek revenge. How could this woman actually, instead of seeking revenge, come and essentially wash the feet of those who had killed her parents? And he began to question, trying to figure this out. He, was, he read and was moved by the story of da Jacob DeShazer, whose conversion to Christ in a prisoner of war camp in Japan as an American staff sergeant and bombardier was powerful to Fushida. So he eventually got a Bible as he continued to wrestle in his soul. And after reading it, he became a Christian in September of 1949. And from that point on, he dedicated himself to sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone and anyone that he could. He spent the rest of his life as a full-time evangelist sharing the gospel. This tree will yield its fruit in its season. Peggy didn't get to see that in that way, but it bore great fruit that she was like a tree planted deep by the streams of water. And this is the promise. This is the result of the blessed life. But the psalm continues in verse 4, not so. And that's the, the, the way the Hebrew works at the beginning is not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. We don't obviously live in a farming culture. Farmers would take the stalks of wheat and beat them on the threshing floor and the, the kernels of wheat, the valuable things would fall to the ground and the husks and the rest of the wheat stalk that was dried out and dead would just blow away. And that's what the psalmist is saying. The other life, the life that you can choose to go down this way to plug your ears, that's what it ends up being like. It's like the chaff that the wind drives away. Before we moved to Colorado when I was eight, we lived in Kansas. And I remember seeing the tumbleweed going across the prairies, the, the farmlands of Kansas. And that's the picture that for me comes to mind when I read Psalm 1. Just this, this, rooted, this rootlessness, just this blowing in the wind. The life of the wicked, though it may appear desirable, it has no substance to it, nothing. Before Chloe, our oldest, was born, Mandy and I, we were over in, in, uh, in England, and we took a trip to go through Europe before she was born, and we ended up in Valencia, Spain, at the beginning of our five-week trip through Europe, and it was in March, and it was the time of the Faya Festival, which is an annual festival in Valencia where you go around the city of a million people, and they have all kinds of fireworks going on, but the most amazing thing is that they have these giant works of art that are at every city square, basically almost every street corner, a busy street corner. And they're, they're these five-story tall, they're, they're beautiful and imposing works of art, but they're built out of paper mache. And on the last night of the festival, they gather near the square and they set fire to the, step, to the, to the piece of art. And it burns up. And they have fire trucks around every square. It's all over the city, probably 20 or 30 of these going on at the same time at midnight. And I give you that as a picture for what the psalm communicates about the life of the wicked. It may look beautiful and imposing and extraordinary, but it can go up just like that because it has no substance. It's hollow. And it can blow away. You remember Jesus' teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount version in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, we sometimes call it at the end of Luke 6, when he says, anyone who hears my words 
but doesn't put them into practice. I'll show you what he is like. He's like that man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms came and the rains came, the, ho- the destruction of that house was great. It was like that five-story piece of art that just burned up in a moment, in ten minutes. But the man who hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what he is like. He's like the man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the winds came and the rains came, that house stood because it was marked by somebody who loved and delighted and and gasped at the instruction of our covenant king. This is a healthy tree that is bearing fruit, and it is the life of those who live in accord with the voice of their father. It's not the case for those who reject that. And I want to be clear here to say that in this case, the blessed man and the wicked man are not the perfect man and the imperfect. (laughs) This is, no one is perfect. In fact, Psalm 32 actually says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. This is actually about trajectory. So if you're sitting here thinking, I could never be in this, I want you to know none of us could be. Only Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the blessed man of Psalm 1, as we'll say say more in a moment. But but this is about a trajectory and an orientation and a direction in our lives. And the wicked are on that trajectory where they have plugged their ears and they're living according to their own ways. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Movement, fleeing, lack of substance and rootedness, even when nobody's running, because that way does not lead to life. It offers great promise, this other kind of life, but it produces no fruit. It is inconsequential, and it is essentially appearance over substance. Just a literary reflection on the structure of the psalm. The simile about the righteous and the tree takes up three lines in this middle couplet of verses 3 and 4. The simile about the wicked as chaff is just one line. And it's as if the psalmist, by the literary structure, is saying, yes, the righteous accounts for more. It's more substantive. Three over one. Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so that leads us into contrasting ends, and the last couplet of the psalm is not only are there different results now, but there's different results in the future. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You remember Psalm 73? Psalm 73, the psalmist is envious of the wicked. Envious of the way that their life seems like this five-story piece of art that's beautiful and desirable. But then he begins, then he says, then I understood their end. And he speaks of how that life ultimately meets the judgment of this one true king and comes to nothing. And that's part of what's being communicated with us here is the way of the wicked will perish, but the Lord knows, deeply watches over, keeps. This is the word for a man knew his wife in the Old Testament. It's a word about intimate knowledge and knowing. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's looking out for you and over you, and he is not asleep. And he will preserve you to the end. One more thing about the literary form of the psalm. The first word of the psalm, blessed, begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph. The last word of the psalm is perish, and it begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. 
We have this expression in English, don't we, from A to Z. And what we mean is this is comprehensive. This covers everything. And that's what the psalmist is saying with that little literary detail, which is not an accident, that what is being laid out before us here at the beginning of this book of the Psalms is this sense that this is comprehensive and covers all of life. Which way are you going to go? Do you want to go down this road or do you want to go down this road? Everything is covered under this umbrella of will you delight in and listen to the instruction of God. Jesus gives us the greatest example of the man of Psalm 1. You might remember after that uh, encounter at the well, he says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. A chapter later in John 5, he says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus had an ear in tune with the will of his father. And as we read about Jesus in the servant songs of Isaiah, in Isaiah 50, we read this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Jesus is the example of one who delights in, who gasps at, who treasures the word of his Father. So when he gets to that point in his life where there is the greatest temptation of all to deviate from the will of his father, to turn a different direction in Gethsemane, he cries out in that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And then he goes in obedience to the will of his father. He goes to the cross. Jesus stays rooted in this life, deeply planted by the streams of water. And he teaches us at the beginning of his ministry in the temptation in the wilderness, man doesn't live on bread alone, rather by every word. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he goes in obedience to his father to the cross. And I ask you this, does this look like blessedness? Does this look like fruit? And this is where I want to encourage you, if you're in a circumstance right now of challenge and heartache and difficulty, and you just can't see, to not deviate from this posture of one who delights in the instruction and word of your Father. Because was there ever a life that bore more fruit than the life of our Savior and King Jesus? Was there ever a life that had greater sense of blessing than the life of Jesus that, yes, ended up on a Roman cross? but ultimately was raised from the dead and brought many to come to know genuine life in his Father. So this way of life that Jesus chooses is a way of life that bears much fruit, though in that moment on the cross it felt like anything but. Whatever circumstance you are in today, may I encourage you to delight in the law of the Lord. You might say, well, what does that mean? And I'll just close with this. In John 15, Jesus actually picks up on these themes of fruit bearing. And what does he say? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, or if you abide in me, and what does he say? My words abide in you. And then he says that abiding means keeping my commandments. It means having an ear that's attuned to the very words of our King and Savior. Much like Peggy Covell did long ago, she was listening, even in her darkest hour, and she obeyed. And in so doing, abided in the vine, 
and bore much fruit, as Jesus promises. And so prove yourselves to be my disciples, abiding in Jesus. It means letting his words abide in you and obeying his commands as your king. Some of you may feel like, well, I haven't done much abiding, and I would just say, let's remember that Jesus' life and death on the cross was such that we, too, could actually enter into this blessed life and have our sins forgiven and continue day by day to step into the vine, to remain and abide in the vine, and so come to bear much fruit. Moses says, I've set before you today life and death in Deuteronomy 30, and then he exhorts the people of God, choose life. Choose life. Delight in his instruction. Abide in the vine. And you will bear much fruit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the great example of your son and for his fruit-bearing life. And Lord, we pray that you would grant to us the great blessing of delighting in your instruction, your word, of having open ears that are not stubborn. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace to mull over and meditate upon your word in hard times and in great times. Pray that especially for the seniors that we prayed for earlier, that they would embody the heart of this psalm as they head off to college this fall, and all of our youth, knowing this way of blessedness. We thank you for showing us this way for forgiving us to enable us to walk upon this way day by day. In Jesus' name.